0: The paper is entitled, Ethical Commemoration, Women and the Irish Revolution, 1919 to 1923. Professor Connolly. I am very honoured to be present here today with Uchtharán Le and esteemed colleagues. My core task is to explore the ethical imperative of posing perhaps some of the more difficult and troubling questions about Irish women's experience of war and revolution in the period encompassing the Irish War of Independence, Partition, and the Civil War and its aftermath. As Centennial Ireland approaches the commemoration of the Civil War and the very violent foundation of the new Irish state, we might ask, who will be remembered. In the wake of very painful and difficult inquiries into the institutionalisation of women in Magdalene laundries and mother and baby homes, Irish society has become more acutely aware of the troubled and troubling place that women have occupied and can occupy in Irish culture and history. One of our greatest poets on this island, the late Ivan Boland, recalled that as a young poet, she began to see a huge rift in Ireland between the past and history. As time went on, she said, it was plain to me that the past was a place of whispers and shadows and vanishings, and that history was a story of heroes. In agreement with Francois Thébault, Looking at the history of women and developing gender-based approaches changes and complicates our understanding of war, both of particular wars and of the general phenomenon of war. The Irish Revolution is no exception. Current themes in the study of women, gender, and wars internationally include the processes that accompany the exit from war, private life in wartime, and gender-based and sexual violence. Further consideration of these issues has the potential to enhance and further expand the scope of Irish revolutionary studies inclusively understood. As Bolin says, exploring the ways in which hidden, sometimes all but erased stories of women's lives can powerfully revise our sense of the past. Feminist scholars 40 years ago began to independently demonstrate how women in Ireland's revolution could not be considered mere victims, stooges, or protected bystanders in the revolution. Uh, Revolutions were not simply steered by male political leaders, heroes, or militants. Women, it is clear, actively shaped and contributed to the Irish Revolution while being profoundly impacted by it. The women's movement one of the most important social movements of the last century was a constant and critical presence in both the revolutionary period and in independent Ireland and beyond. Ongoing campaigns for women's social and political rights, after votes for women was partially achieved in 1918, continued. And women's role as combatants and militants in other Republican and Labour causes, for instance, has been comprehensively recovered in women's history in recent decades. What Alexievich terms the unwomanly face of war is a complex issue, however. Over 20 years ago, the Irish sociologist Professor Louise Ryan published an early groundbreaking article entitled Drunken Tans in the journal Feminist Review. This article was written on the unspoken violence and terror that women experienced in the War of Independence specifically. She referred to and covered what the poet Seamus Heaney has described as the exact and tribal intimate revenge. Here we're referring to uh, sexual violence and gender-based violence. The hidden and targeted gender-based violence that women are known to have experienced in other armed conflicts has only more recently come to the attention of Irish historians, despite being written about in 2020 years ago. A violent and invariably traumatic internal civil war cast a long shadow after the state was established. Yet, public analysis and acknowledgement of several aspects of the trauma experienced in such a divisive conflict was met with silence for decades. As President Higgins said in 2019, let us not look with any trepidation towards the commemorations of the coming years, lest we be tempted to avert our gaze, take refuge in evasion, or seek to ignore the difficult questions they shall raise for us all. Difficult questions, demand difficult histories. A key but difficult question arising in this moment of national commemoration is, if violence cuts to the heart of the state's foundation, how and in what ways is it gendered? And why was the violence that women experienced marginalized, minimized, or negated in the official histories of this period for such a long time? I'm going to move on to look at some examples uh, of what I'm discussing here. And I'm first going to talk about hair and how hair is both uh, symbolically uh, important in understanding the Irish Revolution, but in understanding many wars and conflicts throughout time. There are many documented examples of forced hair cutting being implemented in several counties in the period 1919 to 23 both by Crown Forces and Republicans during the War of Independence, in particular. The interplay of gender, power, and sexuality in the Revolution is very apparent. Women who forged friendly or intimate relationships uh, with British combatants, or the RIC members, for instance, were sexually policed and punished by Republicans. The the reasons for meeting out this kind of punishment were a combination of things. For instance, security concerns, the passing on of information, uh, reprisal for assisting the enemy, such as through the provision of supplies, uh, providing accommodation, being a servant, or working for somebody, and actual sexual policing, the social control of women's intimate relationships, friendships, and movements. In May 1921, for instance, the IRA cropped the hair of Rose Logue from Menecladdy, Donegal, after she laid a wreath on the grave of an RIC constable. Crown forces also conducted hair cutting extensively, typically during frightening night raids on houses. Common among activists such as Kathleen Clark's sister, Agnes Daly, and Peg Broderick Nicholson in Galway, were also subjected to this humiliating practice. And there are many cases of this in several counties, involving varying degrees of force and violence, sometimes just a haircutting, but sometimes uh, physical punishment as well, or assault. These are reported extensively, in, they're in plain sight in the newspapers in RIC reports and in the wonderful personal accounts and sources that Katrina Crowe uh, talked about earlier. As we engage with Dr. Margaret O'Callaghan's paper here today, including by reflecting on the history and legacy of partition, we can also recall that women experienced life-altering violence and trauma associated with the wider conflict in Ulster in this period. In County Tyrone, for example, a member of na Amman, Eileen O'Doherty, was injured by B specials when she was standing at her front door. She was shot in both legs. Her military services pension application details how Eileen was a very successful grocer in the town. She was also involved in despatches, hosted meetings of IRA members, hid artillery, etc. After being shot, Eileen spent eight months in hospital, first in OMA and then in the Richmond Hospital in Dublin. A brother of Eileen, active in the IRA, was subsequently killed by British forces. The medical evidence from this period is extremely interesting, psychological records uh, and also doctors' uh, records and interventions around some of the files in the military pensions. Letters from Eileen's doctor outline the catastrophic nature of, of her injuries. In an interview, Eileen herself stated very poignantly that the wound she got had finished her. The pension applied for in light of this unstinting service and the injuries suffered was declined. The designation hero or economic provision for injuries inflicted was not extended to such women in post-revolutionary Ireland. Newspaper reports on the documented violence women in Belfast experienced in 1922 are likewise horrific. This is something that does need to be looked at in much more detail. Newspaper reports showed that on June, on the 2nd of June 1922, for instance, in just one day, um, the Irish Times reported four deaths and 32 people were injured, including seven of whom were suffering from burns. One of those uh, was the victim of what was called at the time an inhuman outrage. Susan McCormack, aged 40, a servant, was taken to hospital suffering from burns and shock. Shortly after 9 o'clock in that night, a number of men called to the house of Dr. McSorley on Donegal Pass, where she worked, and they poured inflammable liquid over her. Shock and nervousness is consistently mentioned in such documentary sources. She suffered severe burns and shock. This is also reported in relation to forced haircutting and other kinds of assaults on women occurring across several counties. We also get into more difficult questions when we look at sexual violence, which we know is a clear uh, and consistent problem in contemporary societies. A number of cases of wartime sexual violence including what's referred to as gang or what we call today multiple perpetrator rape are also increasingly evident in the archives. Previously it was assumed this was not a feature of the Irish Revolution at all. One of the most treacherous cases of this kind of transgressive violence uh, is associated again with the border region in Drometea near Newry Uh, and this was an event that was a precursor to what has been termed the Altnave Massacre. The gang, gang rape of the heavily pregnant publican, Mrs. Una MacGill by three members of the B Specials occurred on the 14th of June, 1922. A servant, Mary McKnight, uh, was also assaulted. They lived in a, a public house. This attack was intertwined with the cycle of violence of the area, Women's bodies and sexualities were also targeted, and cannot be excluded as a component of the cycle of violence uh, that was occurring. Similarly, the compensation claims for the loss of life that were to follow in Alton Bay outlines the horror, for instance, that Mrs Heaslip experienced, witnessing her husband, John Heaslip, and her son Robert being shot in front of her at the gate into their yard by the IRA. Elizabeth Crozier in the same episode was also shot in front of her young family. Interlinked trauma on both and all sides has lived on a hundred years later and these atrocities are still remembered on the hills, farms and lanes of all counties in Ireland, throughout Ireland. AltnaVay is still remembered to this day. Intricate analysis of newspaper reports and archives, including military and legal trials, um, document such attacks on women. And they suggest that the interconnection of gender, sexuality, and power cannot be ignored as a salient issue in understanding the overall nature of violence and revolution in this period. Two other examples of gang rape in the archives of the Civil War include the attack on Margaret Doherty at Curranara in Foxford, a member of Cumann Amman, by three National Army soldiers on the 27th of May, 1923, exactly 98 years ago. The second, an attack on Eileen Mary Warbur- Warburton Biggs, a Protestant woman in Drum County Tipperary, by four local IRA members in June 1922. The gender-based violence I'm discussing here today cannot be associated with any one side in the conflict in this period, what some scholars have referred to armed patriarchy. The impact of sexual violence on these women from very different backgrounds is recorded in detail in many documents. Both of these women, Maggie Doherty and Eileen Biggs, died in what at the time was called mental homes or psychiatric institutions. Maggie died in Castle Bar in 1928 and her story came to light when her mother Catherine uh, applied for a pension for the loss of Maggie uh, because of what happened to her that night. She did not r- recover uh, from the attack that night and um, the second uh, Eileen Uh, The second woman, Eileen Biggs, died in St. Pat's in Dublin in 1950 and a lot of the records about these women are coming to light. We are beginning to hear their stories and to learn more about who they were. Maggie is laid to rest under the shadow of the Ox Mountains in County Mayo and I recently found Eileen in an unmarked grave in Mount Jerome, which I hope to rectify as an act of quiet commemoration. Commemoration and remembrance that the intergenerational families and associates of such women today often engage in, outside of the state's official commemoration program, is mentioned here today by me as a reminder of the possibility and power of local acts and healing gestures. The power of finding and opening closed archives documenting women's experience of the revolution cannot be underestimated either. The detailed file on the Court of Inquiry held in Ballina workhouse concerning the rape of Maggie Doherty was retrieved in the military archives in 2019. Maggie herself gave a very detailed testimony in that trial. It's a very valuable uh, source. Uh, for anyone who's interested in the relationship between war and gender. The McGuile, Doherty and Biggs cases are just some examples of the hidden history of women impacted by the the violence of the revolution, which received no official acknowledgement in the decade after the state was formed and which was erased from official histories for decades. These women were not killed in an armed battle, but in some cases they later died, or they died soon after, as a direct consequence of the trauma and the injuries inflicted, psychological and physical. Others lived on in silence, burdened with unspoken and unforgotten atrocities of the past. Conflict-related murders of women in this period are also evident, including, indeed, on the border. I will give just one example, the military service's pension application that relates to Kate Connolly's also unsuccessful application under the Army Pensions Act in respect of the death of her daughter, Mary or Minnie Connolly. Minnie died from gunshot wounds on the, on the 23rd of July 1922 at Edenapa, Jonesboro, County, Armagh. It is noted in the death search enclosed in the file that the cause of death was bullet wounds inflicted by members of His Majesty's forces. The applicant claimed that the deceased was supplying milk and provisions to members of the IRA at Ravensdale camp. The deceased was returning with the Moore girls from a camp when shot, and Margaret Moore was also killed in the incident. Likewise, Kate Marr died in Dundrum, County Tipperary, in 1921, with injuries to her body that indicated sexual assault. Allegedly, at the hands of a member or members of the Lancashire Regiment, who she had been in the company of that evening. And that file, the investigation, always secret um, in these cases, uh, was only opened in the 1980s. In conclusion, Women in Ireland's revolution clearly experienced transgressive violence that was extensively documented at the time, but subsequently elided in Irish history for decades. The long-term impact of the bodily and psychological trauma and injury caused is apparent in sources that contain the testimony of individual women. But similar issues also arise in more recent history. Susan McKay, for instance, has recalled how in December 1982, the Irish National Liberation Army bombed a bar during a disco killing 17 people. Eleven of the dead were British soldiers. They were the primary target. However, what perhaps received less attention at the time was that others killed were young local women referred to as consorts. In the 1970s, Republican paramilitaries tarred and feathered women deemed soldier dolls, as the term was used. The punishments inflicted and the language of consorts, collaborators, and dolls in this case, is not any different to the punishment of and injuries inflicted on women in the revolution who engaged in company keeping with the crown forces. The IRA, indeed, appeared to have expended a great deal of time during the Irish Revolution and energy in policing women's sexuality. During the Irish Revolution, products like tar, dirty motor oil, paint, etc., were also doused over women in a humiliating fashion, uh, considered loyal, dangerous, and of loose morals. Indeed, this method was implied in the attack on two sisters in 1922, now referred to as the Kenmare incident. The state knew about the Kenmare case. And they also knew about the Doherty case in Foxford at the time. It's recorded in the Army Inquiry Committee uh, of 1924. In France, after the liberation, women who had been in relationships with Germans also had their heads shaved for consorting sexually with the enemy. In many other contexts, women's hair has been targeted by imperial forces or armies. Hair-taking, as it's sometimes referred to by states, is an established weapon of war. Ireland was no different. The scale of the war might have been smaller in Ireland compared to other countries, other conflicts, but the practice was similar uh, and adapted. This also occurred in later conflicts. If we look at the War of Independence in Algeria and, indeed, the Greek and Spanish civil wars, these same practices occurred. Far less women than men died in the revolution. The more common outcome for women severely impacted by the violence of the Irish Revolution, however, was life altering rather than life taking through uh, death by combat. Naming and recovering the lost experience of the women who who continued to live with the hidden injuries of the revolution in the post-revolutionary period, and whose experience did not fit into the post-revolutionary narrative, is in itself an act of ethical retrieval. Nervous breakdowns, mental illness, institutionalization in asylums, emigration, loss of job opportunities and businesses and livelihoods, all of these issues feature prominently in numerous personal testimonies of both combatant women and civilian women. However, it remains to be seen. Will the official commemoration of the Civil War in 2022 to 23 find a way to ethically remember, understand, and mutually honor these women 100 years later? Or will the commemoration of the final stages of the revolution reproduce the gender hierarchy and power dynamic in Irish history that negated, diminished, and excluded these women's experience and contribution in the first place? Thank you very much.